is the entrance to our cells at the Wellington Central Police Station. Prisoners come in through our main entrance and they uh, come down to the basement level. We call this the Sally Port area, but I guess it's uh, where a prisoner is first received into our cell block. We're uh, below sea level here, no natural light. Yeah, so this is the area where uh, the process begins. Very security conscious, of course, down here. We always ensure doors are locked behind us. For a young person who had been remanded in custody from the courts, this is where the process of receiving them actually into the cell block would begin. And then, of course, it's followed by some fairly strict searching, making sure that they've got nothing that they can harm themselves or ourselves with. Senior Sergeant Jason Ross from the Wellington Central Police Station gave me a guided tour around its cell block. The main male cell block has three corridors running off the main hallway. Each contains ten or a dozen cells. Several of the cells are designated for the holding of young people and they're down in the back hallway away from the adult prisoners who are held there. This is the cell, it's about two metres square, as you can see, only one very small window for us to monitor the prisoners and a ventilation shaft with a single fluorescent light and a concrete slab for a bed. Of course they'll get a mattress and some duvets and a pillow, but it's fairly rudimentary and really designed for holding prisoners overnight. So if they want to wash or use the toilet, how do they go about that? Each cell has its own individual toilet, which is a stainless steel design, which has a hand basin on the top of it, all in one. Prisoners um, could be in here anywhere of up to 20 hours a day, 22 hours a day, so they've got full toilet facilities here. However, we do have showers, and so they can have a shower every day, but generally, being a youth, we wouldn't put them out into the general adult population, so they eat here, they go to the toilet here, they read here, basically... This is where they stay. The cell Jason Ross showed me was very bleak, with words and signs etched into the walls by previous occupants, and when he left me there by myself, my feelings of unease increased. So that's the door slamming, and now I'm in this small pokey room, which doesn't feel very welcoming, and with the marks on the walls from other people who've uh, spent some time in here, uh, it's not a very friendly place to be at all. In the last three to five years, there's been an increase in the number of young people in police cells. Last year, nearly 700 young people spent time on remand in their local station, averaging about three nights each, although some spent considerably longer than that, in some cases up to 10 or 12 nights. But it's not a new problem, as these newspaper headlines show. The Dominion, November 1983. Police play a reluctant role in accommodation of young prisoners. Recently, Wellington police came under fire for keeping a boy, aged 15, in the police cells for four days at Labour weekend. The Dominion, April 1989. The Auckland Council for Civil Liberties is angry that a 16-year-old spent a week in Mount Eden prison despite Justice Department opposition to locking up youths with hardened offenders. New Zealand Herald, December 1992. A 14-year-old youth recaptured yesterday after escaping from the Weymouth Residential Centre in South Auckland will be held in police custody until next week. The Evening Post, May 2001. A wave of serious youth crime in Lower Hutt has led to suspects as young as 14 being locked for days in tiny windowless police cells because there are no other secure beds. October 2001. Commissioner for Children Roger McClay is appalled that a 15-year-old boy was held in the police cells for four nights last week. 
The Press, January 2002. A 16-year-old youth has asked for a spell in Paparua Prison to get out of the cells at the Christchurch Central Police Station. Four youths have been held in the police secure cells this week because secure accommodation is not available for them at the Kingsley Residential Centre in Burwood. May 2004. Green MP Sue Bradford today called on the government to urgently address the needs of young offenders in the upcoming budget announcements. In light of shocking revelations, a 16-year-old boy has been locked in police cells for nine days. The Dominion Post, April 2005. A record 61 young people were held in New Zealand police cells in March while child youth and family services struggled to find beds in youth justice residences. As far back as 20 years ago, adverse comments were made about young people being held in police cells. But despite new beds being provided in the youth justice system since then, there's still not enough room to ensure that all young offenders on remand can be kept out of police cells. That's a concern for many people, including the Children's Commissioner, Cindy Kiro, who's appalled that young people are being held in cells which were never designed for that purpose. It's the place you put people who are completely drunk or incapacitated or totally out of control and lock them up. There's very, very basic facilities. There's no toilet, there's no showers. There's no way that basically any human being should be there for any period of time. And because of the way in which the young offending process happens, it may be that in some cases these young people were in police cells for on average about three days and possibly some even up to an over seven days. We wouldn't hold adults for that period period of time in these cells and we certainly should not hold young people in police cells in these kinds of conditions. The Green Party's social services welfare spokesperson Sue Bradford, who is no stranger to the police cells herself, agrees that they're not a place for young people. She says those who are remanded for alleged offending often have other problems in their lives, including mental health issues and family problems. To plunge them into an environment where they're held in solitary confinement and deprived of any stimulation or the ability to exercise can be quite devastating. It's bad enough when one is an adult and you're stuck in that situation for 24 hours, say, or less usually. But to be a young person under 17, trapped in a police cell for days on end, sometimes over a week, is completely unacceptable and I think is contrary to our um, obligations under international agreements, particularly those in relation to children. And what's the view of those who end up sending young people to these inadequate, often unsanitary cells? Silence will stand for his honour the judge. This youth court is now open. The youth court is part of the district court and deals with young people aged 14, 15 and 16 years old. It hears all cases to do with young people, except those involving murder and manslaughter or when a young person chooses trial by jury. The principal youth court judge, Andrew Beecroft, was appointed a district court judge in 1996 and moved to the youth court in 2001. Judge Beecroft says at times there is nowhere else to put young offenders while they're on remand, but the police cells are only used as a last resort. He says public safety must be paramount, and it's very important that violent, explosive, often drug-influenced, impulsive young boys can be kept in a secure environment. However, Judge Beecroft admits that the decision to remand into a police cell is every youth court judge's toughest decision. We know we're dealing with vulnerable teenagers. They're not men, but they're not boys. When the wind blows through a police cell at 3 o'clock in the morning, some pretty profound psychological pressures are sometimes brought to bear in what is solitary confinement. 
I once presided over a, an inquest of a police cell suicide of a 17-year-old, and it's a terrible tragedy. And I think that's the fear that every youth court judge has, to be quite frank. Judge Beecroft says that many youth court judges, himself included, have gone to visit a young person in the police cells when they've been there several nights just to reassure themselves that the youth is as safe and stable as possible. Back in the mid-1970s, a group that I was part of received complaints that children in Lake Alice Psychiatric Hospital were receiving shock treatment as a punishment and were being treated in a, a totally unacceptable manner. That was my first interest. So I've kept an interest since then. My belief is that children in institutions are particularly vulnerable. That's Robert Ludbrook, a lawyer and long-time advocate for children and young people who helped establish the Auckland-based Youth Law Project, a community law centre which provides free legal advice to people aged 25 and under. He's also concerned about the detention of youth in police cells. Most of them have no facilities for the preparation of food, so they live off takeaway food. If, if the police go out and buy them KFC or McDonald's or food like that, it, it's just temporary takeaway food, which isn't very satisfactory. They eat in their cells. There's no association with other prisoners. They are mixed with adult prisoners, which the Convention on the Rights of the Child says is quite unacceptable. It is very hard for family to visit and consequently they're, they're sort of cut off from their support systems. Compare that with this description of a youth residence from the Child, Youth and Family website. Residences are generally like large houses or boarding houses. Everybody has their own bedroom but other facilities are shared. Residences are made up of two different types of living environments, the open units and the secure units. Most people spend all of their time in an open unit this is the minimum security section of the residence, which allows for more freedom of activity. Robert Ludbrook says the lack of beds in youth residences is also leading some young people to be held on remand in adult prisons, which is a breach of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. He says in other cases, young people have been flown around the country as beds become available at youth justice residences, and that's also quite unsatisfactory. An Auckland young person might be sent to Christchurch by air because there's a bed available in Christchurch. And this has been very disruptive because they're out of touch with their social worker, they're out of touch with their lawyer, they are hard for the family to keep in contact with them. So that's been a, another negative effect. All those spoken to for this programme agreed that being held in a cell doesn't just affect young people while they're locked up. It can have ongoing effects long after they're let out. Sue Bradford says it can especially impact on mental health. Because when you get angry, depressed and despairing, you can either turn to suicide, which some people do, become suicidal, some actually do it, so it leads to death on the one hand. It can lead to the intensifying of addictions, it can lead to um, further mental health problems and it can lead to huge anger at the system that's done this to you. None of those things are productive for New Zealand society. The Deputy Chief Executive of Child, Youth and Family, Ray Smith, admits that it's not an ideal situation, but he says it's only a very small number of young offenders who end up in a police cell. And we're talking about young offenders who commit very serious adult crimes and it's for the sake of community safety and for the safety of these young people themselves that they are often detained until we can find an appropriate solution and that isn't always overnight. So how has this situation arisen? 
The youth advocate Robert Ludbrook says the problems began in the late 1980s when the then Department of Social Welfare began closing down its youth residences. In the late 70s there were something like 26 separate residences for kids. There were four in Auckland. As a matter of policy they decided to close all but the ones in the main centres and so by the mid-1980s there were only five residences available and I agree with closing down residences but the result of doing this is that they just could not accommodate the number of children being sent by the court who they had a legal responsibility to house. Robert Ludbrook believes that attitude persisted into the late 1990s and he recalls a conversation that he had at that time. I remember in 1997 speaking to a senior officer of the Department of Social Welfare and saying, look, why don't you reopen Owairaka Boys' Home in Auckland, which they had spent something like $4 million upgrading uh, and then proceeded to close it. And he said, oh, no, we couldn't possibly do that. And he blustered and said, look, if you provide more beds in residences, you'll get more children, and it is not our job as a care and protection and youth justice agency to provide lock-ups for kids. So that was the attitude, and that attitude remained for quite some time. Judge Beecroft also suggests a lack of forward planning on the part of child, youth and family services has resulted in a shortage of beds for young offenders. He says the demographics clearly showed that the number of young people in the 14 to 16-year-old bracket was increasing, and that meant there was always going to be great pressure on SIF's residences for the first six to seven years of this decade. A second contributing figure is that there has been, it appears, a slight but nevertheless significant increase in our top-end violent offending. Hard to know the reasons, but that certainly put more pressure on an existing inadequate resource, that is our youth justice residences. Judge Andrew Beecroft believes that in the past, child youth and family allowed the youth justice side of the organisation to run down and erode. Instead, more money was put into its role to care and protect vulnerable children. He says that's meant that some community-based facilities which could have been used for serious offenders are no longer available. That's also restricted the options available for dealing with young people who need to be detained. Part of that were community-based facilities that could often have been used for some of our quite serious offenders but who could be well managed and contained in the community. As those resources have eroded, so there's been greater call on the concrete lock-up residences. However, Ray Smith, the Deputy Chief Executive of Child, Youth and Family, doesn't believe that building more residences is the only solution. Our task, if you like, our challenge, along with the New Zealand Police, is to get in front of this problem and try and pick up these young offenders and pick up these young people that are part of families that we know about where there's a risk of offending at a young age and see if we can head these kids in the right direction a lot earlier. That's the better bet, because building more and more facilities isn't the answer. Garth McVicker, who heads the Sensible Sentencing Trust, is another who thinks police cells exacerbate often difficult situations. However, he says rather than just looking at the young people and the crimes they're committing, there is a need to take a step back and look at why they end up doing that. Mr McVicker believes part of the problem arises in the home. He says some homes no longer have a dinner table, meaning families don't sit down for a meal together, and children have no opportunity for meaningful interaction with their parents. 
Garth McVicker says in some families, children are left to fend for themselves, and that lack of care and lack of boundaries is also contributing to the growing rate of serious crime amongst our youth. A lot of our kids don't have those disciplines now and are moving out into the community, and those grazing habits they've developed within their homes are then becoming habits out in the community. They see a young girl, they see a car. They're used to grazing at home, having what they want, taking what they want, when they want it. Why shouldn't those habits continue out on the street? And that's exactly what we now have. Garth McVicker says we need to come up with new ways of dealing with young offenders. So what can be done to help alleviate the problem? Child, youth and families also been considering alternatives for young offenders awaiting court appearances. Over the last couple of years, they've been analysing a supported bail programme for young offenders and it's been piloted in seven areas around the country with promising results. Ray Smith says it involves support people working very closely with those awaiting court appearances and can run beyond sentencing if need be. Youth workers will help young people engage in sporting activities. They'll help them look for work. They'll call around in the morning and get them up and get them moving. We ensure that they get health-related services where they need help in that area. It's a very intensive programme of supervision and support that really helps young people turn their life around. Ray Smith says many of those who've taken part in the supported bail pilot programme have come from very challenging homes where drug and alcohol are used by their parents and they feel very vulnerable. He says those youngsters have spoken very positively about the turnaround in their lives that they've experienced when they have someone who cares about them every day. These mostly young men have come from families where they've kind of been neglected over the years where there's not a sense of order oftentimes and they don't have the boundaries set and therefore they've run amok. I think of them as being you know boys that look like adults but they're just boys inside and we get a youth worker alongside these people they have someone that takes an interest that cares about them helps them find a job just the kind of basic things that young people need. Judge Andrew Beecroft also sees supported bail as a positive way of improving the current situation. He says the feedback from the pilot programme is that it's working well when it's properly targeted. We're pretty optimistic about how supervised bail will go, but provided the proper home situation is present and provided there's good supervision. It won't be for everybody, but you only need to take 10 or 15 out of the residences per year and there's a vast number of bed nights that are freed up. The youth advocate Robert Ludbrook also favours such a system for dealing with young offenders awaiting court appearances. I've worked in Australia and it's been very successful there. In some cases there is a bail hostel so they have residential accommodation but it's not a police cell. In other cases and what's proposed in New Zealand is that they'll be supervised virtually daily by a social worker. It's labour intensive that particular one, but it's a lot better than housing kids in police cells. However, Garth McVicker from Sensible Sentencing isn't so sure that the supported bail scheme will work. He points to the supervised parole for convicted murderer Graham Burton, the man who went on a bloody rampage in the Wainui Amata Hills in January before being recaptured by police. He asks whether the same problems could occur with supported bail. I know Graham Burton wasn't a child and he was on parole but we had promises from the corrections department that they would monitor him and you know he would stick by certain conditions. We've had a number of breakdowns with horrendous consequences and we had a young boy charged with the murder in Auckland and he was on bail. I don't believe the community is geared up to be able to adequately monitor these children and I don't think we can do it to ensure the safety of the community.
Garth McVicker went on an overseas research trip last year with the Corrections Minister and other officials to look at how other countries deal with their offenders, including young people. He was impressed with Canada's Restitution Centre scheme, which gives the young people role models often lacking in their home lives. And I think the positives, from what I understand, what's happening in Canada, they actually have role models. They're taught the important life skills as such, getting out of bed on time, having your breakfast on time. I mean, a lot of homes in New Zealand now don't even have kitchen tables as such. So the kids aren't even taught to eat on time, aren't taught manners, aren't taught respect, aren't taught discipline. Ray Smith says that over the next couple of years, child, youth and family will be in investing another $12 million into addressing youth offending. While the organisation's continuing its efforts to establish a new youth justice residence in Rotorua, he says they're also funding the creation of 25 youth justice teams around the country. He says the team's focus won't just be on holding young people to account for the crimes they've committed, they'll also be trying to find solutions at a community level. Working with others who work in this field to try and help head some of these kids off at the pass and to find solutions when they fall foul of the law. And I'm very confident that with that investment, the investment in further residential capability, programmes like supported bail, and really the just tireless work that I see social workers and others undertake in this field, that we can really make a difference. Ray Smith believes that'll also make a difference and help reduce the number of nights which young people spend in police cells. And Judge Beecroft applauds those developments. He says he's seen some real change in the way that child, youth and family has handled youth justice issues since it became part of the Ministry of Social Development. There's a working group looking at the issue now. I'm quite satisfied that all that can be done immediately to try to improve the situation is being undertaken. There's a slight reduction already in the average number of nights that people are in police cells. So we're hopeful, we're optimistic, but we've had five years of a crisis and things really will need to change quite fast. Meanwhile, the Ministry of Justice, which still has some involvement in the treatment of young offenders, is also looking at new ways of dealing with these teenagers. The organisation's manager of youth justice policy, Rob Handyside, says a programme being trialled in the Waikato from the end of next month is likely, in the longer term, to free up some beds in youth justice residences. He says boys aged between 14 and 17 who appear in the youth court in that area will be eligible for the Te Hurahanga programme, a three-phase initiative, the first part of which is residential. The second phase is a transition phase when uh, they will spend some time at the residence but some time back with their um, families of whānau. And uh, the third phase is a full community uh, phase and during that period of time we will be working with them using the therapy known as multisystemic therapy which is a very intensive uh, working with the families and the other support people around the boy who has been in the programme. Rob Handyside says the programme is modelled on a number of international examples, in particular some programmes in Canada and the pilot will run for three years. He says often the transition from a youth justice residence back to the community hasn't been handled well, but because Te Hurahanga is a longer programme, it enables more to be done for the boy at that stage.
This will keep the staff of Tihirihanga involved with that boy uh, as he leaves the residence and hence the transition phase. And it also gives the opportunity for us to work really quite intensively with all the people who will surround that boy, the schools, the families, possibly people where they might have some part-time employment and so on. And so it's quite an extensive involvement and more intensive than most other options that are available currently. So with the new programs from both Child, Youth and Family and the Ministry of Justice, it appears that beds will be freed up and the number of young people being held in police cells on remand is likely to decrease in future. Ray Smith says that Child, Youth and Family has just completed its evaluation of the supported bail program and that research should be presented shortly. He says they'll then look at ways of rolling that out so that it's available to young people in a wider number of areas. But as Judge Beecroft points out, the situation needs to change quite fast. He also believes the wider community needs to care about what happens to these young offenders, and he says the way we treat them is a mark of how civilised we are as a society. Why would we want to be part of a system that, if it relies on significant numbers of police cell remands, runs the risk of turning our potentially serious adult offenders into confirmed offenders at an early age. We should be working so hard to provide the best we've got, and a police cell remand isn't that. The Children's Commissioner Cindy Kiro agrees, and she says it's important that the community as a whole plays a part in ensuring that these changes are made. She paints a bleak picture of our future as a society if the problem isn't dealt with quickly. Get ready for more crime, get ready for more young people going into the prison and criminal justice system because, you know, if we don't provide the right kinds of supports and if we don't do it as early as possible, it's going to cost us more financially as a society. But more importantly, it will cost them the trauma of their lives and lost opportunities and cost us as a society future criminal behaviour. Meanwhile, figures up to the end of last month show that already this year, nearly 70 young people have spent at least one night in a police cell. Cell. 